Welcome along to the Prevention is the New Cure podcast. I'm Steve Bryan, MP, Chair of the Health and Social Care Select Committee in the House of Commons. And I'm Helen Stokes-Lampard. I'm a General Practitioner, GP, uh, Chair of the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges and Chair of the National Academy for Social Prescribing. Can you fit that on a business card? <laughs> so this is a brand new podcast. Uh, we discuss all things health and NHS related with a political twist. Of course, it's the number one issue with the British public at the moment, and always, in fact. So during each episode, we're going to cover some of the big talking points in health and care policy of the day. And rather intriguingly, I know Helen's keen, we're going to open the pod surgery, which is your chance to shape what we talk about. So you can email podcast at stevebryan.com, and we'll add social media channels to that shortly, and then you can decide exactly the subjects that we're going to go on. And if the first subject is why on earth have you called it pod surgery and can't and you can come up with a better title, I'm all ears. Steve's wedded to pod surgery, I'm not at all convinced. <laughs> so what are we going to talk about, Steve? Oh well I don't think we can do this without talking about strikes. Uh, the first thing. Um, and then I guess I mean workforce is the, the, uh, the linked issue, isn't it, to strikes. And I thought we might talk about prevention as well. The Select Committee's just been talking about that this morning with the Chief Medical Officer. And it is basically what we call the podcast, so that seems very reasonable to me. Yeah. So, strike action. Yeah. I mean, you've got junior doctors yesterday who've now joined the, the strike action, haven't you? You've got the, the nurses still on strike, uh, originally demanding, what, a 19% pay rise, and that now I think they're now down to about 10% um, is the, the compromise that they've said. But the government don't seem keen, do they, to reopen the current pay deal? And just for, just for people listening so they, so they understand the way it works, is that you know the independent NHS pay review body, I say independent because there are many theories as to how independent it is, you know, that makes pay recommendations to the government, which they then accept or don't accept. And um, we are currently towards the end of the current pay deal the 22-23 government want to talk about 23-24 unions want to reopen current one don't look like they're going to do it at the moment though do they no they certainly don't and it's really difficult um you know i think there's so there's the strike action with the three main big health bodies at the moment the paramedics and ambulance strike the nursing unions and now the junior doctors with the british medical association the biggest medical union where they've had the most remarkable turnout they had um, 77% turnout, and of those who voted, 98% voted yeah. for industrial action. I mean, that is so they feel strongly about it, don't they? Our junior doctors feel really strongly about this, and that's sending a massive warning shot across the bows of everybody. Uh, you know, when the most committed of our, of our professionals are feeling like this, I think we do have to take it very seriously as a nation. Mm. But it, this, you know, we th- need to think of the background that we're talking about here. A war COVID. And COVID, yeah. Three years ago, COVID pandemic was taking off. And a year ago, a, a senseless war in Ukraine was kicked off. I mean, I was Jeremy Hunt's PPS at the Department of Health um, during the, the original, the first junior doctor's strike, if you want to call it that, which was really about imposing the contract, wasn't it? Yeah. And, um, you know, this is about pay. But it's, there are wider issues, though, aren't there? You know, it's about the, the wider workforce stuff we'll come on to. It's about the... The demand in the NHS and how burnt out they are, as you say, as you say, post-COVID, and I guess in a way that's what worries me because you know there are figures out there about how many planned procedures and uh, tests that are cancelled each time you have a nurses' strike, let alone if you add the, the junior doctors into that. And you know, my, I guess my worry is that all that's doing is adding to the workload stress that they've already got and just making it worse longer term. While you can understand the immediate need, you know, I hear it all the time from from constituents, you know, struggling to pay the bills because inflation spiked. 
So look, you're absolutely right. We're on the back rent of, in all the wrong ways, record backlog, you know, huge lists of people desperate for investigations and procedures and appointments. And every strike makes those worse. There's no doubt about it. Um, with the nurses' strikes, up until now, we've been having 12-hour strikes. But now they're looking at you know, several days, a three-day walkout. The junior doctors are now talking about five-day industrial action. These are going to have serious implications on the ability of the NHS to deliver routine care. In fact, I think it's fair to say be really significant. Yes, and I guess the bigger picture is if you gave a poorly paid nurse, and let's face it, you know, a newly qualified nurse is not very well paid. Yep. If you give a poorly paid nurse a 25% pay rise, it's still not very much because not very much and not very much is not very much. Indeed. If you're talking about, you know, a a higher end grade five nurse well 25 percent of that is is quite a lot and what what worries me for the longer term and i think the government are really gonna have to wrestle with is if you've got this many people in the health service and it's doing this many things and you want to so people say to me all the time oh well the nurses should get a fair wage and i would say well what's a fair what is a fair, define a fair wage mm. because you know one person's fair is another person's unfair so you know if you're looking at what 1.2 million people are on gender for change which is where the where a lot of the nurses the porters the 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 non-doctored staff in the nhs sit you know you're talking about 700 million pounds for every one percent of the pay rise so a fair wage would be significantly more <laughs> than most nurses currently get and how do we do that when at the moment i think health spending is rising faster than gdp and it, it's very hard to see how government squares that circle, isn't it? Yeah, but I mean, health rising faster than GDP at the moment, but that is on a background of not ca keeping up with GDP. One hundred percent. So you know that the reason we're in this pickle at the moment is that we've got a legacy challenge to overcome. I mean, my worry at the moment is that all the conversation is about pay and pay rise, when in fact we know that what helps people feel remain in the workforce is much wider than simple pay it's about being valued about being looked after it's about it being easy to come to work and there are so many other things that would help but the political sorry the union narrative is all about the money I mean particularly the junior doctors yesterday the it, the talk is of 26 percent pay restoration up until April yeah. 22 not April 23 up to 22 so plus the 10 percent inflation of the current year we are talking really massive sums here and that I think is challenging and what worries me is that I think for an elegant way out, a way out that everybody feels that they've got some sense of win, uh, is going to have to go much wider than that and we'll, you know we mentioned earlier the junior doctors strike of 2015-16, the solution there was a new contract which is, was broad and included a range of initiatives to help well-being and morale and I'm not hearing anyone talking about that. Right no now. I agree and I remember somebody doing a piece of work for Jeremy Hunt who was then the Secretary of State of course um, about the the other issues so you know it's the they used to call it the doctor's mess it's about parking yeah. it's about meals on site and Absolutely. all those other those other the softer stuff actually on top of pay which is one of the things that i hear all the time is what makes it more challenging to work in that i mean i guess the challenge that that, that they have in making that argument is that you know lots of people don't get to part free at work lots of people don't get you know subsidized meals at work and uh and in an organization as big as the nhs it's a it's a it's a huge conundrum and i, I don't know where the strike situation ends i, I do you know what my, my theory is helen is that the landing strip that the government have got here is that they the independent pay body will do its work we had them in before the select committee recently actually um they will then produce their pay award for 23 24 
And normally that comes out in sort of summertime. It's backdated to April yeah. the 1st. Um, I think that could be backdated further. I think you could add in some kind of one-off payment. Yeah. Um, they don't need to take as long until the summer to come up with their report. All of those things could put it on a little bit of a fast forward. And that's how you could, that's the, the, the landing strip where you could try and end this, in my opinion. I think then that could be accompanied by a range of things that we know could help well-being and morale. And I get your point about, yeah, not everybody has somewhere to park their car. But, you know, not everybody is walking around at four in the morning between buildings and dimly lit car parks and feeling quite scared for their yeah. personal safety. Not everybody faces aggressive patients or intoxicated patients on a daily basis. There is a lot of stuff we do in the health service, which is quite different from other parts of society. And I think recognising that, you know, it used to be that people felt valued because of their vocation and people were respected for what they do. Society's changed a lot and a lot of those, wow, you're a nurse, doctor, whatever, is gone. And with it, people's expectations of other things compensating are, are sort of yeah. have become more important. I do think as a society we need a serious conversation about the NHS we want for the future, the NHS we can afford compared to the NHS we've actually got. There's a lot of good evidence out there that the public actually really like the concept of the NHS as it is. They just don't like the service they're getting from it right yeah, now. Yeah, well, isn't that, isn't that a good point? Because whenever I go on the media and do interviews, really, all they really want to talk to ask me as a chair of the, the health committee is, are the government going to settle the pay rate? Are they going to are they going to pay them more? Yeah. Where and then they say, and you know, can I hurry you because we've only got a minute, Mister Brian? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that's what my wife Enjoy says. That's what my wife says. Um, but I mean, I, I guess the wider point, you know, if we had more time to discuss it, is well, and I've tried to introduce this sometimes in interviews. Is well, exactly what you say. What is the NHS that we want, and are we really prepared to pay for it? Because if you think about, you know, Boris Johnson's government introduced the one percent increase in national insurance to pay for COVID catch-up yeah. and then social care. Lots of people didn't like that. Yeah. Uh, lots of people on my benches in House of Commons didn't like that so much so that the Liz Truss government then got rid of it, and the Rishi Sunak government hasn't reinstated it. So, you know, what what are people prepared to pay for? Because to pay to pay NHS staff the kind of salaries that we all think they deserve. Yeah. Um, um, where's it going to come from? And that's that's the difficulty if you're Jeremy Hunt. And I mean, I think that, you know, there is a challenge of hypothecated taxes versus general taxation and yeah. how you split it up. And I, so, so there's a separate argument there, which I, think, I don't think is for us to get too distracted by. But the general principles about having an honest debate with the public, I, do you know, I do think that we underestimate the wisdom of the general public to make difficult decisions. When you... There is really good research that if you ask a bunch of the general public a difficult com a question, they come up with remarkably sensible and pragmatic answers that surprise us. Because sometimes yeah. I think we patronise the public all too often. And I think we need to empower people better and include them in the decision-making more wherever yeah. we can. I think there's a lot of lip service paid to patient engagement. I think it's sometimes a tick-box exercise, but perhaps that's for another podcast. Yeah. Should we take a break? We'll come back and talk about workforce. <laughs> That was an easy one. I just thought, could we just solve that in the next couple of minutes, please? That'd be great. Um, okay, any news on when this fabled workforce plan is coming out? It's been in the pipeline mm. for quite a while. We are now uh, coming towards the end of February, and word was it had to be out before the budget. So as you know, I used to be a health minister, and uh, I produced the cancer plan when I was health minister. And, and I've said this in the House of Commons before. I, you know, I hold my hands up. that It was... 
it was it was going nowhere because it didn't have a workforce plan attached to it. And the cancer charities quite rightly said, yeah, but what about the workforce plan? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the long-term plan didn't have a workforce plan attached to it. So the select committee, when Jeremy Hunt was, was in my job, uh, said about the workforce plan and that it needs an independent assessment to it. Indeed. So my, my guess is this, is that what will happen is the workforce plan will come out around the time of the budget. It will then be sort of consulted on with the Royal Colleges. It will then have that independent assessment. And, it, and we don't know who's going to do it. We had the Secretary of State in the other day and we asked him yeah. who's going to do that independent assessment bit of it. And I don't think they know at the moment. But I think it could be a collection of people. Um, and then I think it will be finally sealed and published as a finished document around the autumn statement. So look, for anyone who's listening who doesn't know much about the workforce plan and the intent behind it, I mean, we've never had a really comprehensive plan looking ahead of what the NHS is going to need the next 5, 10, 15 years. And at, at least. And, and, and it's a complex set of cal- calculations. We've got, I think everyone is very well aware now of our ageing population. And when you get an ageing population, you have this increased complexity that people live longer with multiple long-term conditions. So yeah. you've got this multi-morbidity and complexity issue. We know that there are loads of health inequality challenges which recent global events have exacerbated. Um, And then you've got the dynamics of the health service itself. How is technology evolving over time? How is the way we deliver services and the healthcare professionals we use changing over time? How is the estate of the NHS able to better support more efficient working? But then for me, the underpinning question is, and what staff do we need to deliver it? And so I'm delighted that there's going to be an independent uh, oversight of the plan. I think that's really important. It gives everybody confidence and credibility in it. But what I don't want is for perfection to be the enemy of the good and for the whole thing to be delayed while we're waiting for some super-duper review to, um, to delay us cracking on and doing what needs to be done. I wonder, talking to you know, people around health and care, GMC, you know, they say it takes, what, seven years to train a doctor and then it's seven years to then become a consultant. Yeah, so, you know, you could say, well, if you started now, you're talking 14, 15 years... Can, can we shave something off that, I wonder? You know, do, does it have to be the seven years? Because um, that, that's a bit of a council of despair to think that we're 15 years from getting new doctors that start but, today. But you're 15 years away from getting fully-fledged consultants, yeah. totally autonomous consultants. But, you know, medical school takes about five years. So, you know, we have tens of thousands of amazing students doing their A-levels right now who want to be doctors. At the moment, we turn away four out of every five who want to be a doctor. We probably turn away three out of four, two out of three of all those who could be great doctors. So we've got massive potential. In five years, they'll be junior doctors. They'll be out there on the wards, treating the sick, delivering a huge amount of care. Within a couple of years after that, they can be locally employed or not too long after that, speciality doctors delivering a high standard of care. It's that true independent yeah, consultant you. level that takes that bit longer. And we, do, we, we often underestimate the power of that middle level of what, you know, we call them junior doctors. These are people who've been training for years and can deliver fantastic care. And most of the care you and I get if we're in a hospital is actually coming through juniors. It's overseen by a consultant. So, so yeah, the council of despair is one thing. But we've got a whole heap of people in the system that are burning out and leaving prematurely right now. We can do things to help keep them in the system and support them and shore them up. We've got people who've left we could attract back. You know, quickest and cheapest thing to do is retain who you've got and return. Yeah, because um, you've already trained them. Exactly. You've invested in them already. Can I say something nice about the Labour Party? Yes, of course you can. So We're not party political. I th- We're not. And I chair a cross-party committee. I think that Keir Starmer are always treating a dead right about uh, medical school places. Um, their, their policy to, I think, it double the number of yep. double number of places, that has to be right. 
uh, because you're training domestically. I mean, you know, I represent Winchester. Lots of doctors live in my constituency, and you know, we know that um, children of doctors are often inspired to be doctors, and right, quite right, good, good for them. Um, you know, I do hear from people who say, you know, my my son, my daughter, straight A student can't get into medical yep. school. Um, we've got to increase the number of places. Absolutely. I mean, this is what all the all the Royal Colleges have been calling out for this. The Med Schools Council have been calling out for it. You know, all the people who really got their ear to the ground when they think this is absolutely the right direction of travel. So delighted to hear that. There's been other commitments to increase the medical school places, and I think the trend is right. Uh, but I'm going to pick you up on one thing. Your wonderful constituency and your doctors whose children want to be doctors is fantastic. But I'm a professor also in Birmingham Medical School. We've got some amazing initiatives with inner city Birmingham and kids who don't come from privileged families where there's amazing talent and increasing the, you know, the widening participation, oh, yeah, the yeah. access to medicine for those who don't come from the obvious backgrounds. And the difference is some of your constituents' um, parents are paying for their kids to go and train as doctors abroad. So they're still training to be doctors somewhere, which I mean, is not ideal. And other ben countries are then benefiting from uh, the training. Um, what I worry about for the wasted talent we've got where parents and families can't pay for that, and that, that isn't even an option open to them, or they haven't got, they don't think about looking for scholarships overseas. So I hate wasted talent. Um, I know that medicine on a good day is the best career in the world. Yeah, and I really want to encourage people to think about it. Yeah. Can we talk about prevention? Yeah, of course we can. We really should. Yes, prevention. So, Select Committee this morning had Chris Whitty in. Excellent. The famous professor, Sir Chris Whitty. One of my heroes. I know, of, of, of Downing Street lectern fame, of Indeed. course. Um, as we kicked off our big prevention inquiry. And everyone always says, well, of course we've got to get serious about prevention. You know, my theory is... Without prevention, serious step change in prevention, NHS is in big trouble because demand is rising at such extent. I mean, we're spending 10... In England, you know, Helen, we're spending about 10 billion quid a year treating type 2 diabetes alone. You know, and, uh, and as type 2, of course, um, in large part preventable, and you can turn it around. Yeah. Um, you know, when you think about th the obesity and some of the conditions that that drives... Um, so we're going we're gonna to have a real big old look at prevention. We kicked Good. off the inquiry... With, with Chris Whitty and we were talking about all sorts of things from air quality to obesity to smoking to sexual health. Um, everyone agrees prevention is the right thing to do. Um, there is some lower hanging fruit, I think, in this. So I mentioned obesity, I mentioned smoking. I mean, what, over three quarters of lung cancers are smoking generated and therefore preventable. Uh, we had the CALM report, brilliant report about smoking, still yet to see a government response to that. And uh, they need to get they need to get their um, skates on with regards to that. Everyone agrees prevention is the right thing to do. Um, what does the doctor think? <laughs> it's such a no-brainer, um, but prevention becomes the very much the poor relation of acute and urgent care. Prevention gets relegated because it can always be done tomorrow it hasn't got the sense of urgency that other things and that's one of the challenges of a health system which is funded on an annual rolling basis essentially you know you if you've got a limited amount of money and you've only got a year in which to deliver your kpis are going to be the things that change in a year and the problem with prevention is generally the measurable outputs are five or ten years down the line so i do think there is a challenge in politics to think about how you can take a step back and perhaps be a bit more japanese about looking things at 25 years down the line not just 12 months away what was that song turning japanese turning <laughs> japanese um, no don't start singing. no uh, i mean 
you're, you're right. We do think in terms of electoral cycles, and of course they've been getting ever shorter um, <laughs> with two-year <laughs> two parliaments. Uh, and I guess... You know, if you're if you're Chris Whitty, who you know responsible for the nation's public health in England, and um, you know, I guess over the years of the pandemic, was he thinking about obesity and how we can turn that super tank around, or smoking and some of the the longer term public health? No, because he was dealing with the immediate challenge that was right there in front of him of a COVID pandemic, and that that's the issue: is that how do we embed that into the health system? Now, integrated care boards are meant to be doing that locally. One of the things they're meant to do, one of the things they're set up to do, is to drive health improvement and to and to focus on prevention in their local areas. So in my area in Hampshire, there are totally different smoking rates than there are in the northwest in Blackpool, yes. for instance. So there's that difference in approach that's got to be right. So first thing, Chris Whitty was thinking about this stuff, despite putting so much energy into the pandemic, and that was one of the things that really impressed me, working closely with him, is that he would keep looping back to the unintended consequences of all the acute energy and all the focus being on infection control and the pandemic response was of the stuff that was sliding, and he was worried about it, and he was talking to people, you know, to Tedros at the World Health Organization and to others around the globe about exactly this, and we predicted the challenge we've having. You know, we have seen cardiovascular deaths go up for the first time in decades. You know, the trend had been very much downwards and suddenly there's an uptick in people dropping dead of heart attacks, which should have been preventable. So, um, cardiovascular disease, obesity, you've mentioned smoking. For me, I think we can reawaken what we were doing pre-pandemic. So that's got to be stage one. Let's get back to where we were. But we need to go much wider. And for me, there is a societal thing here as well as a medical thing. You know, putting it all on, okay, putting it all on GPs and their teams to do stuff is fine. But people don't want to be hectored. People want to be empowered to take more control in their lives. What they want is when they want to give up smoking, they want to know there's a smoking support service available for them. Most of those have been axed locally. When people are struggling with gambling or addiction of any description, they want support and help there. And these are not expensive services that we've decommissioned them. They've been deprioritized. And if we put those things back in, we can help. We know that bariatric surgery for people who are morbidly obese makes a massive difference over several years, but we haven't invested in those services. And when people get to that point of being prepared to go under the knife, excuse me, <coughs> um, to reduce their weight, we need to be supporting them, not yeah. putting them in a three-year waiting list. Do you know, I think the government needs to grab the, 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 the nettle on, um, on smoking. And we talked before about a polluter pays levy tobacco companies in the house and i and i i and um and jeremy hunt actually yeah. uh, sponsored an amendment to to put through a a new levy on the tobacco companies which i don't think anyone would complain about nope. they, they might um but you know they 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 target young people um for to, to to bring them into their product and uh you know i think if we were to introduce a polluter pay levy on them and put that money into those smoking cessation services that you say as gp people yeah. want to stop but they want some help to do it um then i think that would be that would be the right thing to do and i mean it's crazy you know we've known for 50 60 years about the harms of smoking but there are new things coming online all the time that are harmful and problematic that we should be addressing one of the mantras i have and we haven't got time to touch today on environmental and sustainability issues but almost without exception what's good for your health is good for the planet and i do think that there is a way of engaging people better by framing um, healthy living in a sustainability and good for the planet angle as well it certainly engages young people better people as i say don't want to be preached at they want to be engaged 
I think we're going to return to prevention many, many times. We I mean, will. one of the things that we're, we're going to be doing in inquiry is not just looking at health and care stuff. So, Good. you know, air quality obviously sits across the, the department environment. You've got issues around housing oh, and yeah. the determinant of, you know, the original, you know, the original NHS was the uh, the health and housing department. That was, was what Nye Bevin set it up to be because he understood that poor housing was a determinant of poor health. And uh, so we're going to be looking at all of those issues and we'll be talking about it as we go. And, you know, one of my passions is around social prescribing and that was the recognition that health and well-being is much wider than the physical health and the mental health it's also about the social factors in your health and indeed the spiritual factors that help us feel good about being human beings and being alive amen welcome back helen do you know what i can feel coming on oh no pod surgery oh now <laughs> I'll tell you what that was. When I was a little boy, I was often in the GP surgery, in the waiting room, in Hazelmere, Surrey, where, uh, where I used to go to the doctors. And they had this thing up on the board where the, the doctor's names would be sort of slid in so that when they weren't there, it could be slid out. And I guess instead of it just them calling your name, what would happen is this light would go on and that noise would happen. And uh, so I've been looking online for that noise <laughs> in preparation. Because it's taken me. It's, uh, 1970s, how dare you? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but am I wrong? I love I love that. A 1970s, yes, it was a 1970s. Thank you, Helen. A 1970s, 1980s. Uh, Sorry. He had doorbell, uh, which used to come on to to tell me that um, Doctor Randall would see oh. me now. Anyway, so pod surgery is open, and uh, and we we've had we've had so many suggestions of things to talk about. Um, Mr. Wolf, who was asking what the time is. Uh, no, he wasn't really. But but he was asking about access to GPs. Now, yeah. now GPs, my goodness, uh, have had a had a battering in the Daily Mail. So you must be doing something right. But <laughs> they have had a battering um, yeah. over since post pandemic. Fair or unfair? Um, a little bit fair, and the vast majority unfair. So you know, I know firsthand the massive onslaught of care that people have needed uh, since things from after the initial phases of the pandemic so we've got a population that is sicker more frightened more uh, in debt and um, more uncertain about their future than they've ever been and that has a direct knock-on effect in terms of GP services so GPs are providing 17% more appointments than they did pre-pandemic on a smaller workforce and that's just England statistics it's similar in the devolved nations of the UK um, so there are more patients wanting appointments and fewer GPs to give them. And because of the way the pandemic made us work, almost every surgery moved over to a, you have to book your appointment on the day. So there's this hideous 8am scramble to get an appointment on the day with a much uh, smaller amount of appointments pre-bookable in advance. And that's probably where the biggest thing is. So when you break down and do surveys as dissatisfaction, most of it is on getting an appointment. Once people get an appointment... They're just as satisfied, they're almost as satisfied with the care they receive. They still trust the healthcare mm. professionals, they're grateful for it, they feel that they're having personal care and that the system is working for them by and large. And when people are seriously ill, they feel the system works extremely well for them. It's that getting through the door. So in terms of what Mr. Wolf is asking, absolutely, we obviously I'm going to say we need a greater number of GPs and the wider team in the community because this is not just about GPs, it's about every member of the primary care team. But we also need a state that works for people. We need telephone and IT systems that work to enable us to communicate better. And I think we need a communication campaign with the public about how the health system has changed over the last few years, what you can realistically expect, and what's just no longer going to be there, what's gone for good. So it's interesting you mentioned the, the eight 
or 8.30 a.m. scramble. So the government had brought out their elective plan last year when Sajid Jabba was held secretary. Then uh, just at the turn of this year, they brought out their emergency... UEC. UEC, emergency... Um, unplanned. Unplanned emergency care plan. Yeah, is that, thank you. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, the, the final one of the three is the primary care plan. Yeah. And I think that's going to come out next month. I'd love to see it. And I think that is going to address this 8am scramble. I don't know how, but I, I think that's going to be its biggest its biggest challenge. Is the other challenge with, with primary care, with general practice, is younger people who I don't include myself in, as you've already identified me as being a child of the 70s, um, you know, aren't, aren't, do we worry that they're giving up on the NHS and that they're, you know, they're happy for, to go for online app, app doctors? And uh, you know, they don't, the idea of going to see a GP in person is a bit weird. It's a bit of an anathema. That's not my lived experience, Steve. I mean, I, you know, yesterday I was in practice dawn till dusk. I, I genuinely did a 14-hour day. It was a bit of a bruising one. Um, and I saw quite a lot of young people in person and some on the phone. Mm. And some of them, I offered video consultations and they were quite happy to speak on the phone. And others contacted us by email. So they are happy. They, In general, you're absolutely right. They're much happier to use other ways of consulting other than the face-to-face. You know, a lot of my older patients still... Uh, don't think it's a real appointment if they've not seen you face to face when in fact they're having just as long if not longer on the Mm. telephone and they've saved all the hassle of coming up to the surgery and getting parked but for them they've had a lifetime of face-to-face consultations whereas for younger people what they want is convenience and rapidity as well as quality of the response they get so certainly we see people using these online apps but i would have said the initial enthusiasm for those dwindled a lot once the nhs because of the pandemic started doing much more of it so interestingly we some of those commercial companies their model was blown out of the water when the pandemic came because the it suddenly was opened up for general practice for everyone for everyone yeah do you know what i think is going to happen is the secretary of state notoriously loves his his data yeah i think and i and i was in a meeting with him recently where he was showing a a prototype, a working, a working prototype of a sort of dashboard, if you like, mm-hmm. in each area of access to general mm. practice in that area. And then, you know, when people say, "Well, I can't get an appointment in my surgery," you can you can see how they compare with other surgeries in that in that immediate mm. area. And of course, patient choice exists, so that you can choose to go to another surgery if you're not happy with yours. And does that, you know, that that kind of sunlight being the best disinfectant, as David Cameron used to say. You know, is that, a, is that a good thing or is that a threat to general practice? I mean, I, I don't know. So you, you're the expert. Well, I'm not about an expert. I can tell you my lived experience. I mean, there's opportunities and threats in there. So sunlight is helpful because most healthcare professionals are inherently quite competitive. We want to be the best. We want our practice to be the best. We want to feel we're delivering the best for our patients. Um, actually, in my practice, if we suddenly were providing a better service in the practice next door and everyone started flooding to us, we'd close the doors. Mm. We can't take it on many more patients. We're at capacity. And so I think there are unintended consequences when you do that sort of thing because you destabilize the practice that's already struggling um, and you then push everything into a practice which just can't cope and who in turn will then offer a less good service because we're not like Tesco's who can um, get staff in quite easily if the demand goes up. It doesn't work like that in, in healthcare. So um, I think you're better off supporting all to improve rather than... So I'm definitely a carrots, not a sticks approach kind of person. Yeah, okay. Um, who have you got? Oh, well, I had a message from Kate Sanger asking about cervical cancer and cancer screening. Oh, my goodness. Well... So there are, I mean, as, as you be the cancer minister, as you know, I mean, there are obviously, you know, my father 
passed from pancreatic cancer shortly after the 2019 general election. Notoriously difficult Horrible. to spot and I'm often so spotted at late stage. Um, and my mother died of breast cancer, you know, and found early very treatable in, in the vast majority of cases. Cervical cancer, in my experience, is one of those that, you know, we really can, we really can beat. And uh, Chris Whitty was saying this morning, you know, that he can see a time when we, because of the vaccination program, yeah. the HPV vaccination program, which, which I, in my time, rolled out to boys as well as yes. girls. You know, he sees a time when we can, you know, almost do away with the screening program because the vaccination rates are so good and so high because cervical cancer is, is, a, is a very beatable cancer. So two things for me. First of all, I share your pain on pancreatic cancer, having lost my dear friend, uh, Professor Dame Claire Marks, chair yeah. of GMC to it, yeah, I know um, that, yeah. not so long ago on being there when she was diagnosed. Um, and you're right, that's very difficult. But cervical cancer, so much of it, because of its association with infection with high-risk types, uh, HPV, human papillomavirus, um, I do think we need to go further and harder on vaccination. So, you know, what percentage of our young people are being are taking up the opportunity to be vaccinated? And if they're not being vaccinated, why not? We should be pursuing, and you can do that through incentives. We've got great examples of how we can do stuff better. And we've learned so much from the pandemic about how to reach out to people who are skeptical or concerned or anxious about vaccination. Yeah. One of my formative experiences as a medical student was nursing a girl with cervical cancer who died, and she was the same age as we were. We were 23 years old, she and I, and my firm were also a few other girls, and we were all the same age, and she died in front of us. And she'd had cervical screening, but hadn't picked up her very aggressive disease type. So traditional cervical screening was great, but always missed some. Prevention is the new cure, is exactly what we're here to talk about. Let's get everyone vaccinated, male, female. Uh, and people later in life starting new sexual relationships. I personally think we should be offering HPV vaccination. You might just because you're 35 or 40, you're starting a new relationship. You need to be vaccinated. Yeah. Well said. We've got to end. Uh, one, one final one as the uh, the surgery. Uh, Christina Millam, uh, who's asked about social prescribing. What what is social prescribing? <laughs> <laughs> you know a bit about that because you said at the introduction at the start. I, um, yeah. In a, yeah, what's the idiot's guide to social prescribing? So I, I have Matt Hancock to thank for my great interest in social prescribing, another of our former Secretary of State for Health, who was around at the time when the NHS contract in England was changed and social prescribing was brought in as part of the new five-year NHS plan. Social prescribing is all the stuff that's good for us that is out with what the health and NHS and care system offer. So... Social prescribing aims to help people live their best life, and that's by offering a range of things to them. It may be advice and guidance and support, so that's help from charities. It could be encouraging people to get out in green and blue spaces. We know that being outdoors is really good for our emotional health and well-being. It can be about arts and creative activities. We know that doing something creative helps us, enriches us, makes us feel better, feel better as individuals, and of course, exercise. There is almost no condition and no state of being where doing some exercise doesn't improve it. Mostly mental health. Mental health, but hugely physical health as well. It's, it's a combination of all these things. And I think for me, for me as a GP, a huge amount of my time is spent helping people whose problems are not physical or mental, but are actually socially focused or sometimes spiritual. And once we understand and look holistically at our patients and recognise things, I'm a GP, I do the medical and the mental health stuff really well. The other stuff is not my area of expertise. But when I recognise it, when it comes into my consulting room, if I can help people find a way through, and traditionally what GPs, but also what MPs, priests, bartenders, hairdressers did is help signpost people to a charity, a club, 
a group you know as an MP in your surgeries, what you've done for your constituents, um, they will get on and their lives will be better and richer. Um, I'm pretty passionate about it. We could spend a whole podcast talking about it, but that's a high-level flavour of social prescribing. Happens to think it's not a great name, but we're stuck with the name now. It was stuck yeah. a few years ago. Yeah, it is what it them, is. Isn't it? Yeah, I love it. Well, look, I mean, it's fascinating. I think we're going to talk about that one more. Uh, there's so many, there's so much to talk about. Look, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, our producer says that I've got a barrelly voice, so I, I hope <laughs> it, I hope it comes across well. Um, we're new to this. Uh, this is a this. brand new podcast. It's called Prevention is the New Cure. Um, there's going to be many more of them. If you want to influence what we talk about, podcast at stevebryan.com and uh, find us on social media and uh, we'll see you next time. We've had fun. Thanks. Thank you.